this morning, we're returning to our series in the Gospel of Luke. Two weeks ago, we were working through the end of Luke chapter 2, and, and as we did that, we got to take just a glimpse of Jesus during his preteen years. And as we looked at that and everything that happened there, what we got to see was a picture of how Mary and Joseph were working to disciple Jesus, to raise Jesus up in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. And even though they weren't perfect parents, they were faithful to disciple their son. And as we looked at everything that took place, everything that happened as they took Jesus to, to Jerusalem and they lost him and then they found him in the temple, as we looked at all of that, what we were seeing is that God uses families as one of the primary instruments to make and grow disciples of Jesus Christ. So we saw how Mary and Joseph gave us an example of how God uses imperfect parents to disciple their kids. And, and then we saw Jesus give us an example of what discipleship looks like where we seek out opportunities to grow and learn, where we know who we are as Christ's disciples and we let that identity set the priorities of our life, where we live in obedience to all that God has called us into. The whole family is involved in the process of discipleship. That's what we saw two weeks ago. But today, as we continue into Luke chapter 3, we're going to fast forward about 18 years from where we left off last week or, or two weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. We're going to see the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, and as we look at his ministry, as we see him preparing the way for Jesus, as we hear him calling people to repent of their sin and place their hope in Christ who is coming after him, as we're seeing all of that, what we're going to see is that salvation is found when we truly repent of our sin and place our hope in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see, and that's our main idea that I want you to walk away with today. If you're visiting with us, I like to have one main idea, one thought that you can chew on and, and meditate on throughout the week from each text, and, and that is the main idea for today. Salvation is found when we truly repent of our sin and place our faith, our hope in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see today. So let's dive right in. Luke chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 1. And we're going to take it to verse 20. The Bible says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? 
And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look into the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, Father, his message is just as true for us as it is for the people who heard it first some 2,000 years ago. And so, Father, as we look at this message, I ask that you would speak into our hearts and that you would lead us into repentance, that you would lead us to place our hope in Jesus. Father, we confess that there are so many areas, so many things where we are tempted to place our hope where we are tempted to to try and find the forgiveness that is only available through Jesus. And so, Father, I ask that you would confront us with that today, that it would become apparent to us and that we would hope only in Christ, that we would find the freedom and joy that is available only in Christ. And Father, if there's somebody here today that hasn't ever placed their faith in you, they've never truly repented of their sin, they've, they've never turned away from sin, to turn to you. I ask that today would be the day where you would do that miracle in their life, where you would lead them to repentance, that they might find joy and freedom in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Most of you know that I retired from the Navy a couple of years ago, and one of the things that led me to retire is deployments. They're long and hard, and it probably wouldn't surprise you. um, The average deployment I went on was about eight months long, but it probably wouldn't surprise you that in those eight months, nearly all of it is spent at sea. And when you're at sea, you work seven days a week. There's no time off except when you pull into port. So typically, you would spend six to ten weeks at sea working seven days a week before you got to take any time off. And and even then, most port visits are are only about five days long. So because of that, you you want to, you develop this, this desire in your heart to maximize your time off. And somewhere along the way, aviators discovered that, that we could get, if we could get one of our officers off the ship early, say the day before we pulled into port, if we could fly him into the, the port that we were going to be visiting, he could start getting things ready for us so that all of the officers in the squadron could maximize their time off. 
So what we'd do is we'd, we'd find one of our more experienced junior officers and we'd get him off the ship on one of the helos and he'd go into port and he'd set up what we called an admin in port. Now there's this, this mantra, this motto that gets thrown around in fighter squadrons a lot and, and it's, it's only true if you don't think about it, but the mantra is that anything divided by 40 is basically free. Right? Like any amount of money, if you divide it by 40, it's, it's basically free. So what would happen is, is we would go and we would reserve the presidential suite at a really nice hotel or, or we'd pull into some ports. We'd reserve a whole vacation house there in that port and, and it might cost six, seven thousand, maybe eight thousand dollars for those five days that we're in port. But if you divide that by 40, it's less than two hundred dollars a person. It's, it's basically free. And so they would go and we would send this junior officer ashore and, and his job was to be the admin king. The admin king would get checked into our lodging. He'd get extra keys. He'd arrange transportation for all of the officers from the ship to wherever we were staying there. Usually it was some sort of charter bus. It, it might've been a party bus from time to time, but he'd arrange food and beverages and, and everything you needed to enjoy those five days you had off. The admin king's whole mission was to get ready for everyone else. He didn't get to leave the ship early to go and have an extra day off of work. He went there to prepare the way for others. His mission was never about himself. It was always about others. And as we look at John's mission beginning here in Luke chapter 3, Luke introduces us to John by showing us that his mission wasn't about himself either. John's mission was to prepare the way for someone greater than himself. And we see that as the text begins. If you've got your Bibles open, take a look, beginning at verse 1. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, at first glance, as we look at that, it feels almost like Luke is just giving us a whole bunch of details to set the stage, to set the date that all of this happened. He lists out seven different rulers, starting with Tiberius Caesar in 29 AD and working down the chain through the governor and the regional rulers to the local religious leaders. And at first glance, it might feel like all of this is just giving us data. But what he's doing here is he's introducing John in such a way as to help us see the significance of John's mission. He's introducing John in the same way that the Old Testament prophets were introduced. For example, if, if you were to flip over to the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah begins in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying, and then it starts telling us the message that Zechariah had. Do you see the pattern? At this moment in time, during the reign of this leader, the word of the Lord came to this prophet. That's the pattern. We see basically the same pattern with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos and Micah and Zephaniah and Haggai. And then here in the gospel of Luke, we see Luke using it for John. Luke is presenting John as a prophet of God a prophet of Yahweh who has received his mission and his message from God. 
And as we continue reading in the text, we see John begin that mission. Take a look there at verse 3. Luke tells us, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and really quick, we need to pause. Because as we read that right there, it, it almost feels like this is saying that the act of baptism is what made you righteous before God. It almost sounds like John is preaching, go get baptized and you'll receive forgiveness. But that's not what's going on here. John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He was calling people to repent of their sin, to turn away from a life of sin and turn to holiness, turn to righteousness, turn to God. After all, that's what repentance is. It's turning away in a new direction. And the act of publicly declaring that, rep, that repentance, that turning, uh, as an act of that, people would, would be baptized. They're publicly saying, I have turned away from my sin. That's what his baptism is all about. The forgiveness of sin comes as they repent, not as they were baptized. And that's the primary emphasis of what John is proclaiming here, repentance. And that shouldn't really surprise us. After all, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, John's dad, in the temple back in Luke chapter 1, that that's what his mission was going to be. So if you've got your Bibles open, flip back over to Luke chapter 1. There in the temple, as Zechariah is in there, and Gabriel stands before him in verses 16 and 17, the angel said to Zechariah, and he will turn, literally, he will lead to repentance, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn, to lead to repentance, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's mission was to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it's a mission that was promised hundreds of years in advance. So flip back over to chapter 3 and, and keep reading there at verse 4. Luke tells us, as it is written, as it was promised in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here, Luke is telling us that John is the fulfillment of the promise Isaiah made in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. 700 years before the moment we're reading about here in Luke, God promised to send a messenger to prepare the way, and John is that messenger. But what I love about this is, is how the language of Isaiah helps us to see how comprehensive the, this salvation that's coming through his mission is. The other Gospels, they, they cite Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, but only Luke adds on Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5. And that's significant because Luke wants us to see how John is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Here in Luke, verse 5 tells us, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. This 
language from Isaiah that Luke is citing here is language that was used to announce the arrival of a sovereign, the arrival of a king, and it's language that's working to show how every obstacle will be removed, how the path is made level and smooth and straight so that there are no obstacles whatsoever. And here Isaiah is saying, and Luke is repeating, that the mission of this messenger, the mission of John is to do that. And he does that, according to verse 6, so that all flesh, Jews and Gentiles, so that everyone is prepared to see the salvation that God is going to bring in his Messiah. Do you see how comprehensive this promise is and John's fulfillment is right here? It's for everyone. Jews and Gentiles, everyone. So John's mission is to prepare the way by proclaiming his message. And as we're working through this text, it's it's pretty clear that John's message is repent of your sin. That's his message. We saw him proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins up in verse 3. But as we keep reading here in verse 7, his message becomes clearer. Take a look, beginning at verse 7. The Bible says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now, now imagine, if you will, like, like imagine what this scene was like. John's out there in the wilderness around the Jordan, and he's preaching this message, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized, and this message is taking hold, and people are coming to hear him. They're coming to see what's going on. Crowds, Luke says, are coming out to be baptized by him, and as all that's happening, John says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't even begin to say that we have our father Abraham. For I tell you, God's able to take from these rocks, he's able to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like, can you imagine this message? Like, as John is preaching this, you're thinking, John, that is not a way to win friends and influence people. That's a pretty harsh message. But I think if we will take the time to see the context, extrapolate the context a little bit out of what John says here and apply it back to his audience... I think we'll begin to see that this is exactly the message that they needed to hear. See, it appears that what's going on here is that the crowds are hearing John preach. They're hearing this call for repentance, and they're seeing all these people being baptized. And as they do, they're beginning to mix things up. They're starting to think that it's the baptism that is most important. And so they're coming out to be baptized, thinking that the baptism is going to save them from their sins. But what's most important? John's primary message is that they need to repent of their sin. They need to turn and walk away from their sin. That's what's most important in his message here. See, these people are coming and they're, they're just following the crowd. They want to go through the motions. But John is saying, that's not enough. You need to actually, truly repent. It's not enough to go through the motions. 
It's not enough to just repeat the prayer after me. It's not enough to raise your hand at the end of a service or walk down the aisle. You need to actually, truly repent of your sin and turn to the Lord. That's John's message. You see, the call to repentance is a call to a changed life. You can't repent of your sin and then continue on in that sin. But if you truly repent, it's going to be fruit, which is what he's calling for here. You'll, you'll be able to see it because your life will be changed. And sometimes that fruit is spontaneous. Like you start seeing it right away as you repent of your sin. You start seeing that change immediately in your life. Sometimes that fruit takes time, years, decades to grow. But if you repent of your sin, if you're truly turning away, there will be fruit. And what John is telling the crowd to do here is bear fruit that matches true, authentic repentance. He's telling them, bear fruit, show the signs in your life that your life has changed because you've turned directions. John wanted the crowd to understand that forgiveness is found when we repent. That's the only place it's found. We need to understand that as well. Because sometimes we'll try to convince ourselves that it's found in other places. Even the crowd did that. You see, it seems like they thought that forgiveness might be locked up with their identity as part of Israel. As part of the family of Abraham. But it wasn't enough to just identify as an Israelite. That's what this crowd was doing. They're saying, listen, I have Abraham as my father. That's where my salvation, that's where my hope, that's where my forgiveness is found. But John is confronting that erroneous belief and he's saying it's not enough to claim to be a child of Abraham. You actually have to be a child of Abraham. It wasn't enough to be descended from Abraham. They needed to live with the same faith that Abraham lived. Paul tells us over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's not about where you're descended from. It's about faith. What makes you a true child of Abraham, what makes you an heir to the promise is faith and repentance. It's not about an identity you claim. And while none of us would walk around claiming to be Israelites, what we ought to recognize is that this warning rings true for us as well. See, it's not enough to just claim to be a Christian. You don't find forgiveness of your sin because you say, I'm a Christian. You don't find forgiveness of your sin because you grew up going to church all the time or because you come to church every Sunday now or because all of your friends happen to be Christians. You find forgiveness through true repentance. You find forgiveness as you turn away from your sin. It's not enough to just identify as a follower of Jesus. You actually have to be a follower of Jesus. And so the questions you have to ask yourself are, have I done that? Followers of Jesus repent of their sin. Have you done that? Have you turned away from your sin? Have you turned to the Lord? 
Is there fruit of repentance in your life? Or are you hoping to find forgiveness in something else? John's message was to repent of your sin. And that message was an invitation to repentance, but it was also a warning. Take a look at verse 9 one more time. John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what I want you to see is that this is a warning that judgment is coming. Now, I know we don't like to talk about that. We, we don't even want to think about it. Maybe it's because eternal judgment just seems so far off that it doesn't even seem real. But what John is saying right here is that it is. One day, each of us will stand before God and answer for our sin. And so the warning is that judgment is coming. But the invitation is to repent of your sin, to receive the forgiveness that is available through the coming Messiah. Because the reality is when you stand and face judgment, there's only one answer that will be accepted. There's only one. Like when God asks you, why should I allow you to come into my presence? You're not going to be able to explain away your sin. Your only hope is to say, I repented of my sin. I placed my faith in Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for my sin. It's already been forgiven. That's our only hope. And so we have to repent of our sin. We have to place our hope in Christ. See, there's a warning here. Yes, but there's also an invitation. And so my prayer is that you'll heed the warning and receive the invitation. We've been playing around with church so much. What if we actually did this? It seems that the people heard the message. Take a look at verse 10. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? In essence, the, their question is, if baptism doesn't lead to forgiveness, if that doesn't do it, if my identity as an Israelite doesn't lead to forgiveness, then, then what do I do? What's my hope? What do I do now, John? And, and John's answer is basically the same. John tells them to live a life that demonstrates that repentance has actually happened. Take a look at the text, starting at verse 10 again. Luke tells us, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Three different groups of people come to John and they ask him, what do we do here? And each time his answer isn't what we would expect. When we talk about repentance, often we, we frame it in a light of things that we're going to give up. Often when we think about repentance, we think about what do I have to sacrifice? But notice John doesn't tell any of them to give up anything here. 
As Pastor Mike McKinley up in Virginia noted, John doesn't tell them to withdraw from the world and live in a different world. He he doesn't say, give up your friends. He doesn't say, go get a new job. That's pretty significant when you think about like the tax collectors, right? They are funding the Roman occupation. They're Jews who are taking money from fellow Jews to fund the Roman occupation. But he doesn't say, go get a new job. And the same thing with the soldiers. He doesn't tell them to withdraw from the world and live in a different world. No, he tells them to live in this world differently. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like generosity. It looks like faithfulness. It looks like living with your eyes fixed on what God desires. John's instructions to the people who are responding to him is to live a life that demonstrates the fruit of repentance. We don't withdraw, we engage. But we engage in in a way that shows that we've actually repented of our sin. In a way that shows that we're living in the good news that we have received. And so if you're here today and you're hearing me and you find yourself asking the same questions that John was being asked, if you find yourself asking, okay, Josh, what do I do? The answer is simple. Live for Jesus. Live a life that has been changed because you've repented of your sin and you've placed your hope in Jesus. Let repentance overflow into how you live your life. Let it lead you into love. Let it lead you into joy, into peace, into patience, into kindness, into goodness, into faithfulness, into gentleness, into self-control, because the fruit of repentance will lead you into the fruit of the Spirit. If you find yourself asking, what do I do? The answer is repent of your sin and then allow that repentance to bear fruit in your life. So John's message was to repent of your sin. And that's a message for you and me as well. But as we come back to the text, I want you to see, excuse me, John's hope. Because as John's message takes hold in the lives of the people, the people, it seems, were tempted to place their hope in John. But he's going to show them where their hope should actually rest. Take a look, beginning at verse 15. The Bible says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether it might be, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I don't want you to miss this. John's hope is that Christ is coming. That's where his hope lies. As the people are hearing John's message, as they're seeing lives begin to change all around him, As people are repenting and being baptized, they're all beginning to wonder, is this the Christ? Is John the one that's been promised? Is he the one? Is John the person in whom we should place our hope? They were doing what we're inclined to do. 
See, often we're inclined to place our hope in the people who've made an impact in our lives. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent. Maybe it's a a teacher or a mentor. It might be a neighbor or a friend. It might even be a pastor. I know that there are are people in my life who've made an impact for me, like spiritual, like superheroes in my life that I'm tempted to place my hope in them. But the reality is if we place our hope in them, eventually they're going to let us down because they're human. Because they have a sin nature just like you and me. And they weren't designed to bear the weight of our hope. There's only one person who can bear our hope. And that's Jesus. That's why I love John's response right here. Because John's response to their question is to point those people to his hope. And John's hope is that Christ is coming. He tells them, it's not me. One who is mightier than I is coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And he's going to baptize you with a better baptism. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John points them to his hope. And John's hope is that Christ is coming. And he's coming with salvation and judgment. Look at verse 17. John says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. The picture that John paints right here in verse 17 is one of salvation and judgment. He says, Jesus is going to act like a thresher who's going to separate the weak wheat from the chaff. He's going to take his pitchfork. He's going to pitch it into that pile. He's going to throw it up in the air and have those wheat kernels, those who have truly repented and placed their hope in him. He's going to separate that from the chaff, those who have not repented. And for those who have repented, he'll draw them to himself. He'll bring them into his barn. But those who have not repented, the chaff, they'll be burned with unquenchable fire. Do you see how this is a picture of salvation for those who have repented and of judgment and damnation for those who have not? And and again, I know we don't like to talk about judgment. It makes us uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's not coming. It is. And the good news that John was proclaiming, the good news of the gospel itself is that there is salvation available. That unquenchable fire does not have to be yours. That's what he's telling them. There's an invitation to repent and believe, repent and hope in Christ, place your faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. The invitation here is good news, which is why John just keeps on preaching it. You see verse 18, it tells us that. He says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to them. Now, how is that good news? Like the very verse right before it, he's saying that he's coming and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff he's going to throw into unquenchable fire. And then he says, he kept on preaching good news. How is that good news? It's good news because of the invitation. It's good news because of the salvation that is available in Jesus. 
John's mission was to prepare the way for salvation by preaching good news of repentance and hope in Christ. And so what we're seeing as we get a picture of him living out his mission is that salvation is found when we truly repent of our sin and place our hope in Jesus Christ. If we repent of our sin, if we place our hope, our faith in Jesus' finished work at the cross, he will forgive our sin. He will give us his righteousness and we will be forever reconciled to the father in heaven. We'll get to spend all of eternity with God in heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's the good news of John's mission. But just because it's in the text, I don't want you to miss the reality that following Christ isn't always easy. Living for Christ is sometimes very hard. And Luke makes that clear in the last two verses of our text today as we read in verses 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John's faithfulness to the calling of God on his life ultimately led to his imprisonment and his execution. Elsewhere, we can read in our Bibles how Herod is there at a party and his niece comes and dances provocatively before him and he promises to give her anything. And so his niece comes to her mother who is his mistress. And she says, what should I ask for? And she asks for John's head on a platter. So Herod gives it to her. Following Jesus isn't always going to be easy. And the Bible doesn't try to hide that. It it doesn't sugarcoat things. There will be a cost to following Jesus. But what the Bible also makes very clear, what I can tell you from personal experience is that it's always worth it. And so the invitation stands. Will you repent? Will you turn and walk away from your sin? Will you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Will you place your hope in Jesus? Who's coming again? Because this is showing us that salvation is found when we truly repent of our sin and we place our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your kindness to us. Our sin deserves your wrath, and yet, as we encounter this warning that judgment is coming, it's coupled with this invitation to avoid that judgment. It's coupled with this invitation to repent and receive true forgiveness. Father, we confess that so many times we are tempted 
think that we can earn forgiveness by good works, to think that we can earn forgiveness because we claim to be a Christian. Father, would you correct that thought every single time it pops up in our minds? Father, when I'm tempted to think I'm earning my righteousness by serving you or doing some good deed, God, would you correct that on the spot and remind me that the only righteousness I have, remind us the only righteousness we have is found in Jesus as we repent of our sin and we hope in Christ. Father, would you protect us from placing our hope in things that are going to let us down. In people, in institutions, in governments, would you protect us from placing our hope in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ? And would you help us to look forward with anticipation to the day when Jesus will return and like the thresher, he will gather us into his storehouse.